Amen. What a joy it is to praise God with song. I hope you've been joining with us on our Sunday School series as we continue to look at songs for singing, as we desire to be a congregation that loves robust congregational singing and praise unto our God. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn this morning to Luke chapter 3, as indeed we hear the voice of our Savior the voice of Jesus speaking in his word this day. We will be looking at two verses, and we'll go into um, verse 23. So beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Thus far, God's holy word, you may be seated. If you have ever gone through a closing of a house, then you know that there is a lot of verification that is needed. Verification that the seller has the right to sell this property. Verification that the buyer has the means to purchase such property, a verification that everyone is who they say they are. I guess that is why there are closing attorneys that are involved so that something of this magnitude happens without a hitch. We recently went through this process about a year ago now, and days before the closing, I got an ominous call from my real estate agent saying that I was being sent the wire instructions And she said with all fervor, you must, must, must call the closing attorney's office and verify the number, the wiring number. And she went on to say the reason why, because there had been a lot of scammers that posed as closing attorneys. And people unknowingly had wired their down payment for their home that they were trying to purchase, sometimes in the tens, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars Wiring it to scammers, never to see that money again. Well, as you can imagine, that was enough to put the fear of God into me. So you better believe I doubled and triple verified that this was the right number before I hit sent. And so verification in our day is extremely important. And it was and is important in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ is who he said he was... There needs to be verification of that, and there was. In fact, we see it throughout the the life and ministry of Christ. The, The gospel writers want you to see this again and again. Not only do they refer to the Old Testament, but they show again and again and again how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And through it, you can understand that he truly is who he said he was and is, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And you can come to no other conclusion. You might think that if it just happened once or twice, some might be able to say it's coincidence or happenstance. But when it continually happens again and again and again, you can indeed come to no other conclusion. And so as Jesus begins his public ministry, he is verified. 
He receives the stamp of authentication. And that takes place in and through his baptism. His baptism, as we will see, is the inauguration of his ministry. That all that he came to do, all that he was sent to do by the Father, is demonstrated because he is who he said he was. That he is truly the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And so we'll see that this morning in in two points. Verification and then validation. First, this verification. As mentioned, the, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist was the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. All four Gospels make this abundantly clear because all four mention it, which is quite significant. All four Gospel writers are saying, this is important. We need to understand this. Now Luke's description of Jesus' baptism is the the briefest of, of all the accounts, only two verses, but they are dense They are full of meaning and significance and indeed verification. And in this day and age, no doubt, as I mentioned, verification is important. No doubt you've gone through that two-step verification process. When you've put in a password and then they say, we're going to text you a number or we're going to email you a number or a code and then you have to put in that code. It's a verification to to make sure that you really are who you say you are, that you should have access to what you're gaining access to. Well, Jesus at his baptism is triple verified. He essentially goes through a a three-step verification process to say, this is him, this is Christ, this is the Messiah. And that Verification begins with the ceremony of baptism itself. In Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus came down from Nazareth to the Jordan River, to where John was. And this is a watershed moment in the life of Christ as he is leaving Nazareth. He is leaving home to begin what he came to do. And in so doing, Jesus was, was crossing the Rubicon, so to speak, or, or maybe we could say crossing the Jordan. There was no going back. There was no turning back. Jesus, going forward, would no longer be known just as Jesus the carpenter. No, he would be known as Jesus the Messiah. He'd no longer be known as, as Jesus the, the son of Mary and Joseph. No, he'd be known as Jesus the son of God the Savior of the world. And I can imagine that all the angels in heaven were were watching this moment and were saying, finally, it's beginning. It's starting. And Luke tells us in, in verse 23 that this took place when Jesus was 30 years of age. Now you might ask, why 30? That seems like a, a long time. Was it because Jesus... Uh, had this situation of of failure to launch into adulthood, into manhood. Because perhaps if you are like me, I I don't want my kids around while they're still in their 30s, right? 18, 21, here's the door. Come back anytime for a visit, okay? Now, you might be asking, why 
was it that Jesus was, was 30 years of age when he starts his ministry? Well, we read in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 23 that it was at age 30 that the Levitical priests would enter into their service, that they would enter into their priestly duties. Now, no doubt there was training and preparation all of their life, but it wasn't until age 30 that they were released to be what they were born to be. And the same was true of Jesus. Though he was born to be the Messiah, the angels said as much, he submitted to the law in every aspect, even to the age requirements. And so this baptism was the inauguration into that service. And it didn't happen with sprinkling of water at the temple. No, it happened with sprinkling of water at the Jordan River by the hands of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And so his baptism demonstrates who he was. Now many get Jesus' baptism here confused with our baptism. What we see when, when we see children or adults coming to the baptismal font, but they are not the same. Oftentimes those of Baptist persuasion will, will say to me, Jesus was baptized as an adult, so all must be baptized like him. No, what Jesus went through was not Christian baptism. See, Jesus went through the, the baptism of repentance. John said as much back in verse 8 of Luke chapter 3. But I think the apostle Paul states the difference very clearly when in Acts chapter 19, he is speaking to the Ephesians. And Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then Paul said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the distinction, don't you? There was John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, but then there is Christian baptism, baptized in the name of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should not confuse these two. But then the question perhaps remains, why would Jesus, the one that was perfect, the one that was sinless, need to go through the baptism of repentance? What did Jesus need to repent of? Well, absolutely nothing. And that is why in, in Matthew chapter 3, John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. When he sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized, John says, no, it's, it is I that needs to be baptized by you, Jesus. Jesus, I'm the one that, that needs to repent. I'm the one that needs cleansing from you, not the other way around. And then we have those very important words of Jesus when he says to John, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says John consented. That is the key, isn't it? To fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was not baptized for his sake, but for ours. 
to be the representative of his people. See, Jesus didn't need repentance, but his people did. Jesus did not need cleansing from sin, but his people did. In order for him to be the covenant head, in order for him to be the mediator, he needed to do this for us, for you, and for me. And so this act of baptism was a demonstration. It was a verification of who he was, that indeed he was the Messiah. He was the second Adam. He was the anointed one. But he wasn't anointed with oil, but he was anointed with water. And as we'll see, with the Holy Spirit. So that is the the first verification. Well, the second verification is, is John the Baptist himself. We've already known quite a bit about John. We know about his supernatural pregnancy of his mother Elizabeth, that though she was too old to get pregnant, she still got pregnant with John. And what was the message, the the heavenly message, the angelic message to both her as well as to her husband, Zechariah? It was that your son is going to be special, that he is going to have a special task, that he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And even though his father, Zechariah, initially did not believe this, he understood soon enough. In fact, if you just turn back a, a couple pages, you'll see at the end of chapter one, this is what Zechariah says to his son and about his son in verse 76 of chapter 1, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you hear what Zechariah is saying? about his son and to his son. You will be a prophet. You will be the one that prepares the way. You are the one that is is bringing the light to all of us that sit in darkness, that sit in the shadow of death, that you are guiding our way to the way of peace. In other words, John was the one that was bringing everyone to the light. John was the one that was bringing everyone to the person of peace, the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John was a prophet in that way. We would say he was even the last of the Old Testament prophets. And not only would he have the the privilege of being able to say, thus says the Lord, he would be the one that would be able to say, no, this is the Lord. This is the one that you need to listen to. In fact, he does that exact thing. In John chapter 1, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John says, I came baptizing with water, but he comes baptizing with the Holy Spirit." that he might be revealed to Israel. Yes, John was a a prophet. After 400 years of of silence, without the the people of God hearing the the voice of God coming through prophetic 
utterances. Finally, that word comes through, it breaks through. And so you understand and see the significance of of John. Think about that. Silence for 400 years. The United States of America has only been in existence for not even 250 years. And so for a revelation to come from heaven, this was, was a significant event. And what was that revelation? Well, the revelation was John being able to say, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one who is, who is greater than I. The one that, that came after me, but he was actually before me because he is the ancient of days. He is the eternal God. The one in whom I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. That is a, a strong endorsement. In fact, Jesus uses that, that endorsement or that verification when the chief priests and the scribes were trying to attack him, when they were trying to say, who are you? We read of this in, in Luke chapter 20, a passage that we will we'll get farther down the road. They come to him and say, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will ask you a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And it says that they discussed it with, with one another and, and they said, well, if we say from heaven, then he'll say to us, why did you not believe him? Why did you not believe John? But if we say from man, all these people will stone us to death because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered him and said, we do not know where it came from. And so Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see what Jesus is saying, all, all the people, all know that John was a true prophet of God, and they knew what John said, and that he could not be denied. And so John verified to them as well as to us who Jesus was, and, and he is. And so we have this verification of the baptism itself, we have this verification of John the Baptist, the third, and perhaps the greatest. You have the verification of God Almighty, specifically God the Father and God the Son demonstrated here at his baptism. Every baptismal account in the gospel says that as Jesus came out of the water, not as he came out from being immersed, but as he came back on the shore, we are told that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove in the form of the the image of a dove. It was a visible manifestation of the Spirit. Just like in the Old Testament, when the, the cloud by day and the fire by night led the Israelites through the wilderness. Or just as the, the fire came down from heaven at the inauguration of the Old Testament temple, of Solomon's temple, so too this was a, a symbol of the the dwelling of God coming down from heaven to earth, that God is indeed dwelling amongst his people. And here we, we do not see it coming down on the tabernacle. We do not see it coming down upon the temple. We see it coming down on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating that he is the, the true Emmanuel, that he is indeed God with us. 
And John wants to make this abundantly clear in his gospel as he begins when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And do you see what is taking place here? That the, the glory of God was manifest. It was, it was seen. And it was seen to, to come upon this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you and I would have saw Jesus, there wouldn't have been anything amazing or spectacular about him. No doubt he looked just like any other Jewish man. But here, literally, the clouds of heaven open up so that the, the glory of God is seen. And that is seen in the, the coming down of the Holy Spirit as a special revelation to say, here he is. Do not miss this one. Do not miss the presence and the dwelling of God amongst you. And if that was not enough, we also read a voice came from heaven that said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Here we see and hear the voice of the Father. My son, my, my beloved son. This is a reference, no doubt, to, to Psalm 2, where it says that you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As well as Isaiah 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold my servant, in whom my soul delights. If you want to think of, of two probably of the greatest messianic prophecies, messianic scriptures of the Old Testament, you probably can't get a greater verse than Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, and here you have them blending together in one. The Father saying, this is my son, this is my servant, the one in whom I delight. None of this, the descent of the Holy Spirit or the, the voice of the Father, was done for Jesus' sake or for Jesus' benefits. He knew who he was. This was for us and for all of those on, on that day to know. This was the, the verification. And so do you see the, the layers? There was layer after layer, authentication after authentication of who he is as he begins his ministry. We read by two or three witnesses every Truth will be established. Here you have the witnesses both of earth as well as of heaven saying, yes, this is the one, the triple verification of Christ. Well, second, then you have the, the validation. Maybe after all of that, hopefully not, but maybe you're saying, I, I see what you're saying. I, I, I see it in the scripture, pastor, but so what? Tell me why this is important. Why I should, should care. What does this have to do with, with me? Well, I think there's several things that, that we should take away and be encouraged by through the baptism of, of Jesus. First, we see Jesus coming. As he begins his ministry, is, is not just the work of Jesus himself, it's the work of, of God himself. And when I say God himself, I mean the whole person of God, the, the whole deity of God, God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Holy Spirit. See, not too often do we see all three persons manifest in Scripture in the same passage. 
where all three persons are, are evident. Now, all of them are there in every passage because the work of one is the work of all, but, but here we have all three specifically mentioned. We have Jesus, who's God the Son. We have the, the Spirit descending, who's God the Holy Spirit. And then we have the voice from the heavens, which is God the Father, saying, this is my Son. In these two verses, you have all three mentioned, clearly distinct, yet being one in being and purpose. And it's more than just an approving. It's a a testimony to us all that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in this work, the work of salvation, in the work of redemption, Yes, Jesus is the one that is the most visible as we will see throughout the Gospels, but we should not think that the God the Father is absent or, or that the Holy Spirit is nowhere near. No, they are all involved in this. They're equally involved, all united on this purpose to save a people for themselves, for himself. And so whenever you think, is, is my salvation, is, is that something that is, is important? Is the, the salvation of the world, is that something that I should, should think that, that God is concerned about? Yes, absolutely. You see, it's important enough for, for the Father to send and the Son to go and the Spirit to empower and to confirm. Or you can put it this way, the, the Father sends, the Son saves, and the Spirit seals. All for the one purpose, the redemption of his bride the church. So this is a signal. It's a a validation of the importance. And that is still true this day in us, in me and in you. And this is God-ordained from beginning to end. Do we not see in this passage that God is not standing far back, that he's not standing aloof, He's not standing in heaven saying, hey, if you can make it up here, you you can come. Come up to me. What do we see in this passage? No, he comes. All of him comes all the way down to save and rescue the likes of us. As Samuel Rutherford once put it, I don't know which person of the Godhead is my favorite, but he says, I need all of them. Amen? Amen. And second, we see at the baptism of Christ a Savior that identifies with his people. As I said before, Jesus did not need repentance, but we do. Jesus did not need cleansing, but we do. And he went through all of it for us. Not to just be sympathetic, but to be the all-sufficient Savior. He is the one that makes repentance and the full forgiveness of sins effective. He is the one that did what we could not so that we could have what we could not attain on our own. That is perfect righteousness and the full forgiveness of our sins. And that is exactly what Christian baptism demonstrates. And that's what's so different than than John's baptism is that if Jesus didn't come and fulfill what he came to do, they wouldn't be able to repent unto the forgiveness of their sins. But because Jesus came, because he was baptized, that repentance and that full forgiveness of sin is actually effective for you and for me. 
And in so doing, we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as such, our identity is found in him, that all he did, he did for us, and that we are united in him. We have union with him. So often, if you go to weddings, you hear that passage of the two becoming one. Do we not see in Christ, we have the two becoming one? Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, becoming united together. And that is symbolized, that is solemnized in the sacraments, in the baptism, as well as in the Lord's Supper, that Christ is in us, and we are in Christ, and that they cannot be separated. We also hear those words at wedding, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Do we not also have that in Christ? In fact, man cannot separate if we are in Christ. In fact, nothing can separate us, can it? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is because of Christ, and that is demonstrated in our baptism. Because in our baptism, we have union with Christ And that's why we need to remember our baptism again and again. It's not just some symbolic ceremony that we do once upon a time and we just totally forget about. We should bring it to mind again and again and again. In fact, our statement of faith in the Westminster Catechism, it has this question and answer of improving our baptism. Now you might say, what? What does that mean? How do we improve our baptism? Well, what the... the, our forefathers are saying is that baptism isn't just a one-time event, that we mentally and spiritually go back to it again and again. In fact, every time that we see the sign of baptism and minister, hopefully, Lord willing, next week we will see the baptism of uh, our sacrament of baptism administered. We understand it not to just be a, a private ceremony that's taking place that everybody else is watching. No, it's a corporate sacrament. That each and every one of you says, just like this little one or just like this adult is being called out, is being set apart, so am I. Just like this one needs the forgiveness of sins, so do I. Just like this one needs to be united to Christ, so do I. And I have it. It was promised. It was given to me at my Baptism, it is a tangible gift of God given to me. I am Christ, and Christ is mine forever and ever and ever. We often say to our loved ones, I I will love you always and forever. If we're honest, we don't and we won't. (laughs) But God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit can say to us through our baptism, I will love you always and forever. And you know what? He does. And he does perfectly. And so we see that we have a Savior that fully identifies, that is fully sufficient 
to be the Messiah, to be our Savior. Third, because all that is true of Christ is true of me and of you. We can also understand that as the Father sees the Son, so he sees you and me as sons and as daughters of his. And how is it that the Father sees the Son? Well, you do not need to wonder, do you? We hear it from the Father's own voice when he says, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And you might say, well, yeah, that's true of Jesus, but that's surely not true of me. That could never be true of me. No, I'm displeasing. I'm I'm a mess up. I'm a failure. I'm always getting it wrong. And that is true perhaps of you, but you are no longer you. You are in Christ. And in Christ, as I mentioned, the two cannot be separated any longer. That if it is true of Christ, it is also true of you. In Christ, then, you are the beloved In Christ, you are then the well-pleasing one to your Father. That is now your new identity. And for us to think of an identity outside of that that does not behold the the loveliness of who you are in Christ and how you are well-pleasing to the Father, you need to, to cast out and send away. This does not deny that we are sinners, but we are sinners that are continually running to the beloved and being reminded that we are beloved in Christ and that we have that full forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon, a whole book that is dedicated to love, it's primarily the love between a a man and a woman in the union of marriage, but As we know from Ephesians chapter 5, all marriages point towards the ultimate marriage, the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. And in that book, in chapter 6, in verse 3, we read these words, I am my beloved's, and the beloved is mine. Do you understand, church, that's what we can say in Christ. And that is what we ought to say in Christ. I am the beloved's. And the beloved is mine. And man, if you're thinking, well, you know what, that's, Pastor, that's, that's, that's just a little bit too much touchy and feely for me. Let me just give you Paul's words then. Paul, who I think we can all say was a man's man, writes, he says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear what Paul is saying? You can talk about predestination all day. You can talk about adoption. You can talk about God sovereignly working all things, but it better bring you to the beloved. It better understand the love that you have in Christ and the love that Christ has for you. More and more and more. I am the beloved's. And the beloved is mine. Church, that truth needs to sink down to our very toes this morning, doesn't it? That truth needs to revolutionize our life, that if you are in Christ, you are a beloved son, and you're a beloved daughter, 
that all the privileges of Christ are now your privileges. All the things that are valid in Christ are now valid in you and will be for all of eternity. But if you are not in Christ this morning, if you are not putting your faith in Christ, then it is not true of you. But what this passage would say to you is flee to Christ. Flee to the one that has shown his love, has demonstrated his love again and again and again. Come to the one, the only one, the only name under heaven that has been given to man by which we must be saved, the name of Christ. I'll finish with that thought again in our statement of faith, the Westminster Catechism on the subject of baptism. It has this little phrase. It says, we are as those that have therein given up their names to Christ. That we are those that have given up our, our name to Christ. We, we hear the name of this child or this adult when they are baptized, but we must understand that there's a greater name that is being placed upon them. The name of Christ. The name of a Christian Just as in marriage, a a, a woman, a, a wife takes the name of her husband, so too in Christ through our baptism, we take the name of Christ and we give up our name. In essence, we say, my name is is of no worth. My reputation is of no meaning. Not in comparison to the name and reputation of Christ. Who is Joel? He is but a sinner, lost in his sin bound for hell. But who is Christ? He is the pure, spotless Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And so therefore, who am I in Christ? In Christ in me, I am beloved. I am a son of God is filled with life everlasting. Christ. Christ is the name that matters. Take that name upon yourself, to be of Christ, to be a Christian, that is our new identity. We've received it at baptism. Jesus, our Savior, is verified, he's validated, and he's fully sufficient to be our Savior, both now and forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for, again, such a picture of who our Savior is, and in this simple act of baptism, we see that you are who you said you are, and you continue to be the Savior and Messiah of the world. Lord, would we know that salvation this day? Would we know that love that you have for your Son is the love that you have for us now in the Son, just as he was the beloved Son, And in him you were well pleased, so too as you look down, because of the righteousness of Christ, because of the full forgiveness of our sins, you see us as Christ, fully beloved, fully pleasing in your sight. Lord, would that not only encourage us, would that delight us this day? Would in the light of your love, would we return great love to you as we give of our life in service to you as we take on your name, the name of Christ, to be called a Christian. What a blessing it is. Lord, both today 
and forevermore. We praise you that you are ours and that we are yours. Amen.